0: Here we are, and we've just had 2 Timothy 4, 6 to 22 read to us. Um, and um, I wonder what you made of that passage, because it is a little bit... Golly, all those names, all those names. And when I first read it, I think my first thought was, well, it is great as a matter of principle, as we have been doing over the last few weeks, to read through whole books, through whole letters. But actually, when you get to the end of them, what's there to say? When we get to the the wish-you-were-here bits and the, you know and I I love yous and the yours sincerelys are much much like our own letters. You know, you think, what do you actually say about all that? I mean, you know, in in the version we just had read, there were 17 verses, 10 of which in the NIV are under the heading personal remarks, and the final four under final greetings. So how do you fashion a worthwhile 21st century sermon out of the sort of kiss the kids for me and say hi to Auntie Idas, you know, which is kind of what we have just had. How do you turn that into a, um, a first, from a first-century letter into something worthwhile for our day and age? Well, I would say this, of course, but you uh, ask God, as I have done. And um, if you're struggling then, and this is almost part of my point this morning, if you have one, you ask the Mrs. Um, the title I was given for my talk uh, is Press On. And, of course, that angle is entirely justified by Paul's reference in the stuff we've just read to his past, present, and likely future tribulations. But then, as you'll know, and that's why there was a concert last night um, entitled Pentecost Praise, it's the day of Pentecost. And uh, that's the day when Christians celebrate the gift to us of the Holy Spirit. So I thought, press on, and Holy Spirit, let's try and weave these themes seamlessly together this morning. And, uh, seemed like a nice idea, but I wasn't making too much progress with it um, until I put the thing to my wife, Ruth, who cleared the path almost at once. Wonderful woman. that she is. She's not here at the moment, but you can pat her on the back later if you know. And I suppose at the heart of that, it was just, that was really almost the fact that Ruth could help me in that, in that um, circumstance. Although I've been thinking about it and praying about it and reading the verses again and wondering what, how I might say it is almost part of the point this morning, because it's great when we have other Christians to turn to for support, isn't it? It's great when we do that, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me just get back to the text. Now, I don't know about you again. I said, what do you make of it? There's a lot of names, and sometimes you can just get a little bit overwhelmed with the names. It's just There's so many of them, and you kind of lose the track in the end. And it seemed to finish with a sort of blessing, and, and there were the final greetings. And And where do we end up with? Right at the beginning, you may remember some quite famous verses. I've kept the faith, fought the fight, uh, run the race. Those sorts of things. They're quite familiar. But I think what stuck out for me were a couple of sort of matching themes. And the first of the pair, which is, as it were, the downside, the, 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 the flip side, the wrong side of the coin of this matching pair, as it were, is Paul's account of his experience of other people. In what he writes, I think there's a mixture of sadness, of disappointment, and sometimes of active criticism in what he writes. But it's also worth noting that the extent to which the people in question sort of drew that response from Paul, whether it was passive or active or whatever, varies a lot. The the reasons why Paul feels let down vary quite a lot, if if you just look back there are four things I might just read to you he says at one point, verse 10 Demas, because he loved this world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica so that wasn't Demas wasn't particularly having a go at Paul, he just got distracted lost the faith so to speak seemingly and went off a couple of others Crescens had gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia, almost also in verse 10, don't actually know why Maybe Paul sent them there. Maybe they had a job to do. Maybe they just kind of went. It was just their time to go. They had something to do there. Again, nothing particularly nasty or active in that, but, but Paul's without them now. He had them. They were with him. They were giving him support, but they've gone. The next one, verse 14, is quite different again. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. Something very active, perhaps even malignant in that. And then later on in verse 16, Paul says, At my first defense, no one came to my support. Everybody deserted me. So it's quite a a negative thing. There's four or five different instances there of, of Paul's disappointment in people. But the paired theme, as it were, the upside that goes with that, is found, I think, in Paul's references to how God has supported and will support him when people fail. In verse 17 we read, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. And then the next verse, Paul writes, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. So, where does that leave us now? We've got people letting Paul down, God propping him back up. We've got Pentecost Sunday and a theme of pressing on for this talk. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves me with this question that I just want us to address for the rest of the time with us, which is, as Christians, what is our role in helping others to press on? And what is the Spirit's role? So what do we do to help people? And what does the Spirit do? This idea of people and God The two sides of the coin, it seems, perhaps. Well, taking our cue from Paul's experience, as recorded in what we've had read to us, but frankly also perhaps from our own experience, which might well have been bitter, may not have been, but it might well have been, the simple fact of the matter is that, it seems, that the influence that each of us can have on the lives of others close to us, our friends, our family, our neighbours, our colleagues, the influence we can have, for good or ill, actively, or passively, is huge. It's huge. Now, you may think, you may be very self-effacing, and think, well, actually, I'm not important enough to anybody, really. I haven't got the power, that kind of power, over anybody. What I do is never really going to affect anybody. Well, if you want to take that view, but I'm sure you'd be surprised if you really thought about the influence you might have on others, just view it the other way around, why don't you? And think about the influence for good or ill, actively or passively, that other people have on you. The influence we have on one another is huge, especially those quite close to us, those who might expect that they can rely on us. And, of course, you have a range of relationships, people you're very close to and people you're not so close to, but you see quite often that there is a certain amount of mutual responsibility between you. Perhaps it's only a formal thing, I say only, a formal thing in the form of uh, perhaps a a colleague. You may be their boss. You may be somebody who works for them. Either way, there's a relationship there and a certain amount of dependence. Now, my purpose, I'd like to think, is obviously my purpose this morning isn't to make you feel guilty about when you may have let others down or to feel resentful about people who you may feel are or have been letting you down. But just supposing that someone you know were to write a letter... Just like Paul we've read about how things have been for them recently. If they were to write a candid letter mentioning names... Again, no sense necessarily that you are all active or passive in this. But if they were to write a letter, might you feature it in a way that you'd rather you didn't? That's possible. Maybe not, and there's no reason why you should, but just a thought... Of the way you can have an influence on somebody. Similarly, if you were to write a letter yourself in the same sort of manner, would there be some people close to you who'd be mortified if they knew what you might actually write about and what you might actually think about in terms of perhaps what they have, the influence they have or haven't had on you? Now, I don't want to dwell on that, but I just want to use that, as it were, as a way of emphasizing the fact that we have an influence on one another. We we might not. perhaps always be aware of or always be conscious of. Now putting aside the details of reason or motive or intent or indeed as it were the size, the scope, the importance of the influence you may or may not have had a simple point I suppose I'm trying to underline is that we do rely on the support of other people close to us to different degrees for different things and kind of we're almost inevitably therefore from time to time going to feel let down. Now, sometimes, in the context of thinking about people pressing on and struggling, perhaps the reason that I haven't supported somebody, or perhaps the reason I have done something again, actively or passively, I may be aware of it, I may be not, I may have intended a certain action to have a a certain result, I may not have known it, but perhaps the reason somebody's struggling to press on is because I haven't supported them. Perhaps it's something that I haven't done. Maybe. Or perhaps the reason they're struggling and struggling to press on is nothing directly to do with them. These people, a lot of the people we read Paul talking about here, the circumstances he's in isn't their fault. But actually, one of the reasons he's struggling is they're, for whatever reason, again, for whatever reason, they're just not with him. They went away. Because they lost their focus, they had other stuff to do. They just kind of bottled it at the last moment. So, our influence on others may be a direct cause, possibly. I hope not. But it may from time to time that people are struggling. And the other way around, maybe we're not helping them in their struggles. Now, Paul seems to suggest when he found himself in that predicament, God was there to help. These people left me, but God. I had this problem, but God. Now, what's your experience of that when you feel left out? What's your experience when people let you down, where is God, so to speak? And what actually does that mean in practice to receive God's help? It can mean many things, I suspect. But what do you think Paul was talking about? And what do you think, what's your experience of that? When I feel let down, but God was there for me somehow. How was he there? How is he there for you? How do you hope that God would be there for you? I don't know if you're struck by something that Asniv was praying earlier. She said this. Speaking to God, you fulfill every single one of our needs. I wonder at that point, how many of you thought, no, no, you don't, you don't, I or I'm still waiting. for you end want wanting to say, and not always in the way that we wish or anticipate? And I think there's something about that, which is, we believe that God meets our needs, but we wish he'd meet it in one way or another way. And perhaps the way he does, it may be a slow train coming, or perhaps he's seeking to meet a need in all sorts of ways. There's an old sort of cliché joke, isn't it, about a bloke on a desert island who prays for God to relieve him. And a boat comes by and says, no, I'm waiting for God. Somebody comes by in a submarine, no, I'm waiting for God to bail me out. Somebody comes by in a, in a helicopter, no, no, still, I'm still waiting for God to take me off this island. And you see where that's going, which is actually there they all were, those opportunities, and he wasn't prepared to see them because he was thinking a certain way. How does God help us? When people let us down, where is God? Just uh, a few Bible passages I want to throw at you. Luke 10, the Good Samaritan. Okay, there's a good example. How does God meet needs? Not in the people that you might have expected... That the Samaritan, sorry, that the that the man who was injured might have expected, but in a completely different way, but through the agency of a person, unexpected in two different ways, perhaps that it wasn't that it was a human agency, and of all the human agencies, it might have been it wasn't the one that the injured man might have expected. Here's a quote from James, letter, chapter two, a couple of verses there. Quite familiar with this. The old phrasing was. Be of good cheer, I always like that, but if you do a word search in the NIV of be of good cheer, you're going to struggle because I think it's probably in King James' old version. But here's what um, James writes. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? If you say, oh, God, I know you're struggling, be of good cheer. What good is it? And then perhaps my favorite verse, a fantastically wonderfully challenging and inspiring passage from Matthew 25 when Jesus is talking about how it will be on that day. You know, the vision of sheep and goats and you did this and you didn't do this. The people who he's praising, that Jesus is praising in that picture, he says, you know, tells them when you did good things. But They say to him, when did you see a stranger? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you, Jesus, sick or in prison and go and visit you? And the king will reply, Jesus says, truly I tell you, whenever you did it, for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. For me, almost on my behalf. Is what Jesus seems to be saying. Where was God for those people that were visited, that were sick, that were clothed? Where was God? They were in the person that visited, that went there when they were sick, that clothed them, that fed them. Now, if I were to ask each of you, and I'm not about to, I do have some time constraints here, now if I, each of you individually the question about what it means in practice to receive God's help I'm sure I'd get a huge range of answers. I might get a huge range of answers from each individual, let alone a wide range. of You know, if you're just allowed to give one, what that range would be. It'd be huge. And I think the range of answers about what it means to receive God's help would reflect different emphases amongst those present here about how the Holy Spirit works. Getting it back to Pentecost. Here we go. To one end of the range, I suspect there'll almost be... There'll be certainly be some views along the lines of, well, listen, when the chips are down, I pray. When I'm on my own, I pray, and God comforts me. It might sound a bit intangible to you, but it's very, very real to me. And that's certainly the experience of many. Quite often, I find it quite fascinating. It's the experience of many people who write books. It's, you know, somehow there's an inspiration. When people have found there's nothing left but God, it inspires them. And some of the books you read at the back, you don't tend to read too many about, actually, God may be in quite ordinary ways. In fact, it's when the chips are really down. And it is wonderful that that is a fact, that God can be in a way that you couldn't show exactly. There's nothing tangible or fixed about that, but God does meet the need. Paul seems to be talking about that himself in a way. Everybody went, but I knew that God was with me. He was in my spirit. He inspired me. I knew he was there. And actually, it's as though he was in a physical presence. That's as it were, perhaps, at one end of the range. At the other end of the range, I'm sure you would say, what it means, what means most to me when I am struggling is when God sends me someone. Sends me someone to help send me someone perhaps just to be with me. They can't perhaps do anything other than just stand or sit with me in my pain, in my suffering, just to know that there's somebody there. That's that's how God speaks to me when he sends me someone. And if you have this sort of range from God in somebody personified and God just there in spirit. And that's just how it should be. Because I think that's how God works in so many different ways. Not just because he can, but because that's what we need. Because we are different. The circumstances are different. And the way that God will meet our need will cover all that ground. But I can't, in closing, certainly cover all of that ground. I just want to focus on one thing today in the context of Pentecost and the theme of pressing on. And it's this reflection and call to action that I want to focus on In the Acts 2 account of the first Pentecost, we read that Jesus' disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. People filled with the Holy Spirit. And in being so, those disciples were in a variety of different ways empowered and inspired to change lives. Prior to Acts 2, prior to Pentecost, and even in the teachings of Jesus, it was it would be easy to think of the Spirit of God as, and certainly from the Old Testament, it was just to have the impression of the Spirit of God as, as almost a purely external magic power of God. But from Pentecost on, it's much clearer that the Holy Spirit is also God's power potentially like inside each one of us, not this kind of... We mustn't forget that, the way I'm describing to you very, very, very carefully now, this waving of my arms. We mustn't forget that of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did say to Nicodemus, liken still the Spirit to the wind blowing where it will. We can't tame the Holy Spirit. And yet, and yet at Pentecost, the fact is the Spirit was given that he might live inside each of us, not just out there, but in each of us here, in anybody who will receive him. And that means that by the indwelling presence in each of us, we are enabled to be God's agents of change. When we do something inspired or empowered by the Spirit, that is the Spirit at work. I just want to finish with one tiny little phrase that perhaps gets lost in all the names in the passage that we read. And perhaps just because of the context that I have today and the way I'm trying to focus my thoughts, perhaps it's, I'm giving it too much precedence, but I think that's the beauty of Scripture, is that sometimes certain words mean more in certain occasions than they might otherwise. The little phrase I want to focus on is at the very beginning of verse 9, seven words in which Paul simply pleads with Timothy this, Do your best to come to me quickly. do your best to come to me quickly. And why I think that's really important is just somehow dropped in there. Paul's sort of dependence, in a way, on Timothy. He also says, can you bring some others, bring Luke along? But there's just that little plea there, come, come, I need you. And on this day of Pentecost, and with the theme of pressing on, and the struggles that we might have to do so, perhaps in what we might call our Christian lives, just in our everyday lives, on the day of Pentecost, I just want us to consider this idea of who might it be that needs you to come quickly to them. Today, may be an ongoing thing. For whom will we be God's Holy Spirit at work in their lives? For whom... Are we, you, just you, it may only be you that can do this, for whom are we God's power at work? The Spirit was given to us that we might be God's power at work. It was given 2,000 years ago. The Holy Spirit is alive in us now, will indwell with us if we ask and will empower us, inspire us to do God's work if we're open to that. Why don't you stand with me please?